Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. It's animals being taken out of their natural habitats and being forced to do something that they're not doing voluntarily. Um, They're not living in natural environments. They're not living in natural social groups. Um, They often don't have appropriate diet, maybe not access to proper medical care. They might have restricted movements. These are sort of common themes that we see when animals are being exploited for profit. Wild animals are not companion animals, and what we think is affection is often really aggression to them. We have to kind of put aside what we want and remember to think about things from the animal's perspective. That was Kristen Diedrich from CompassionateTravels.com. She is today's guest here to help us choose wisely when it comes to animal experiences. Look, we love to encounter animals as travelers, right? I remember going to Costa Rica and just being thrilled at seeing monkeys for the first time in the wild. I'm like, I want to see a monkey. And it's incredible to witness the diversity of this planet in places all over the world. And this podcast isn't about taking that away. It's about making better decisions, getting an awareness around some of the common animal experiences you can have, like elephant riding, photos with animals, feeding and touching animals, dolphin experiences, and so on. And not becoming the perfect traveler, but getting informed and doing our best as individuals to do things the right way. And that's what Kristen is here to help us do today, unpack some complicated issues around this and discuss some practical tips for travelers. And it's a fun one. (laughs) Sometimes you go into these episodes and they seem like, Oh, this is going to be so heavy, but come along for the ride. You're going to have a good time. I guarantee it. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience and those life-changing moments we have as travelers when we have these animal encounters can truly stick with you. And the goal of this episode, as I mentioned at the top, is really to educate us as travelers about wildlife issues so we can travel more responsibly. And we get into that, all of that today, as you heard at the top. Stick around on the back end. I am going to share some fun facts, a couple of fun facts I found about one of the animals mentioned today. Without further ado, we're going to get into this interview. One last reminder, zero to travel.com slash newsletter. You can sign up over there to get the latest and greatest. It's totally free. Join the community off the podcast. Would love to welcome you in there. Okay. Thank you for listening and please enjoy the show. Whereabouts are you? Um, I'm in Albania right now. Oh, are you? Okay. Wow. Yeah. 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 You're doing the digital nomad thing, right? I, I am. I'm giving it a try. Okay. 
Well, we're, we're going to talk about that because I want to see how it's going and a whole bunch of other stuff. I should formally welcome you to the show because this is the thing. So I'll, I'll say, Kristen Diedrich, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. You reached out after listening to the show and hearing some things and you thought, hey, you know, just so you know, here's like a bunch of information on ethical travel. And I know with your company, CompassionateTravels.com, which we'll link to all the stuff we mentioned today, because I think there's going to be a lot of resources mentioned. You're all about educating travelers around the wildlife issues so they can travel responsibly, whether they book through Compassionate Travels or not, which is really cool. So I thought it would be a really good opportunity. As you'll hear, you're a real expert on this topic. And I think all travelers at some point have animal experiences. And that's what we're focusing on today. So thanks for being here and and giving us your expertise here. My pleasure. So you're from rural Pennsylvania? Because I'm from Pennsylvania too. I don't know if you knew that. I do. I actually, I'm from the other side. So I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, south of Pittsburgh. Okay. Which town? Town is a strong word. It's near (laughs) Uniontown, if you're familiar with that area. So it's like way down in the corner. Yins, Yins live... Somewhere near Pittsburgh, right? <laughs> somewhere, somewhere. <laughs> Yins, isn't that isn't that a Pittsburgh term? And- that is a Pittsburgh thing that I try <laughs> never to use. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there some um, rural Pennsylvania, I guess, slang or just like what of rural Pennsylvania is still in you? Oh. That's a good question. You know, there's a lot of slang from rural Pennsylvania that I think I've stopped using because I haven't lived there in so long. But I think clicker instead of like remote control is is rural Pennsylvania. And I grew up saying pop, although I have switched. Oh, that's right. Pop. Yeah. Yeah. That's soda. Yeah. Yeah, That is soda. Yeah. Yeah. So you still you still ask for a pop. I'm sure they don't know what you're talking about in Albania. (laughs) No, no. I stick just usually with water here. Pop, your father's not here. No, you advanced me some information, a lot of information, which was wonderful because now I kind of have a really great arc, I think, to this episode that'll provide a lot of value for for travelers. When you were kind of sharing some of the things about you, you're from rural Pennsylvania, from PA. You went to Penn State. I went to Penn State as well. Yeah. So, I mean, not crazy. It's a state school, you know? (laughs) It's like, what's the most affordable, best school I can go to that I can hopefully get into? All right. There it is. There it is. How was your experience at Penn State? I'm just curious. You were probably there long after I was. But (laughs) Actually, I think that is not true. I think we were there pretty close to the same time. Um, But it was great. I, I grew up in a Penn State family. So, both of my parents went to Penn State and have friends from their time in school. So from the time I was a toddler before that, um, I was going up to Penn State. My parents, we were always very into the football scene and going up for tailgating and hanging out with friends. So spent a lot of time there over the years and it was just the natural choice for college. You were indoctrinated early, I guess. Yes. (laughs) I've tried to explain to my wife and kids like the whole Penn State scene. And just like the American college scene, because I don't think you can really understand it unless you grew up around it or were in it. They are excited to go to the creamery one day because that's the ice cream place there. And I don't know if this is an urban legend or if it's true, but they say they don't sell the creamery in the store because the fat content's too high. So it's illegal to sell in the store. Interesting. I don't know if that's true, but the ice cream's phenomenal. So... (laughs) It is good. They need to get some (laughs) vegan flavors, though. I I mean, to be fair, I haven't checked lately, but... Um, yeah, I, I'm vegan now. So the creamery is, is a no go for me, but I loved it when I was in college. And so I wish that they would bring, <laughs> bring back, but fun ice cream related fact, Ben and Jerry are associated with, with the creamery and with Penn state and all of that. And they have some amazing vegan ice cream that if you haven't tried is definitely the way to go. That's true. Well, you got a master's degree in primate conservation in the UK. And then you wrote your thesis in Sri Lanka on responsible wildlife tourism. I wanted to start there and just hear a bit more about what that experience was like for you in Sri Lanka, what, how that thesis came together, why you chose that, what, yeah, what it was like on the ground and 
share what you'd like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, I learned about Sri Lanka when I was in middle school and was just immediately captivated by it. And I always wanted to go to Sri Lanka. And it just so happened that when I was in graduate school, my thesis advisor, Dr. Anna Nakaris, had done a lot of work in Sri Lanka and she had connections there. So it was a very natural fit for me to be able to use her connections and build on her past research to be able to go to Sri Lanka to do this work. And so what I was doing was I was working with Jetwing, which is one of the um, leading hotel chains there, to look at how much tourists actually knew about animal welfare issues and how that influenced the excursions that they would choose to go on while they were on holiday. And so first assessing how much they knew, how much interest they had in actually learning more, and then creating educational materials to tell them some of these things, and then surveying them again to see if that changed the types of activities that they wanted to participate in. And the real premise behind that was really that once you've chosen an excursion, and you, if you show up and you find out that it's a little sketchy, it's not quite what you thought, it has really low animal welfare, they already have your money. And so kind of the damage is already done. So the point was trying to get hotels to educate tourists, to help them make good choices, and to support only ethical tourism options so that they could take their guests on these really high-quality excursions rather than having them end up supporting something that was actually low welfare. It's so difficult when you, when you're already there and you see something you don't like, or you get bad vibes, you know, it, it's just like you said, that it's too late. And so I think that's one of the big goals here with this episode is to kind of figure out your process for researching, vetting, giving yourself as an individual traveler, the best shot at, having an ethical experience. Well, I mean, you know, should people do any animal experiences at at all? Realistically, they're going to, right? But I'm just curious what your take is on on that. Yeah. So there's absolutely a place for animal tourism and but it's really confined to two sort of big buckets. Number one, the best way to see wildlife is in the wild, right? And supporting ethical ecotourism that has responsible practices, supports local communities, and really provides a financial benefit to those communities to keep those animals protected and wild. Um, And then the second bucket is supporting ethical sanctuaries who are doing the work to provide care to animals who, for whatever reason, can't live in the wild. And they're often doing education with local communities, advocacy work, um, and then they have the expense, of course, of providing for the care for these animals. And so then when you go to visit these ethical sanctuaries, not only are you having the opportunity to learn about the animals, see them, understand the issues that they're facing, but then you're also financially supporting that work that the organization is doing and funding the care for the animals. Mm, Okay. When did you fall in love with animals to, to the level that you wanted to build your life and your career around fighting for their rights, working with them? Yeah. So I've always loved animals. Um, Grew up, like I said, in in rural Pennsylvania. So I spent a lot of time in the woods rescuing animals um, and was really interested at the time in protecting the Amazon rainforest and protecting endangered species. Those were sort of my causes of childhood. And I never really knew how to translate that into a career. Um, And then eventually I decided to sort of move into conservation work. And that's when I decided to go to grad school. Um, And while in grad school for conservation, my life sort of took a different turn. And that's when I got more interested in animal rights. And so from there, I I moved into the animal rights world and spent almost 10 years um, working on behalf of animals exploited for food. And so I was in fundraising and doing a lot of work there. And then kind of sprinkled throughout, I've always sort of done conservation work, volunteer work. Um, with animals and really love to get involved with animals when I'm traveling. Um, I I love to travel my whole life as well. And so I've done a lot of volunteer work along the way with animals. And I've had a lot of experiences choosing tours, accidentally ending up at places that I probably should not have been. Um, 
And so then really wanting to bring those together and combine that love of travel with the love of animals and really kind of go back to that thesis topic of really working on responsible wildlife travel. You say your life took a turn when you kind of pivoted towards animal rights away from conservation. What Can you share a bit more about that? Yeah. So I found that conservationists and animal rights activists have very different views of how to think about animals. And I want to I preface this by saying that I have so much respect for conservationists. It's so important. The work they're doing is vital. But conservation tends to be very human-centric, and it tends to think about animals at the population level. So thinking about whether we have enough genetic diversity in a certain population, um, how cutting off habitats is going to separate populations and how that's going to impact movement. Um, whereas animal rights activists tend to think about animals as individuals, right? So that's like every single life matters rather than the populations and the continuation of the species matters. So the example I always use is like a conservationist might say something like, we need to preserve elephants or we need to protect elephants because I want my grandchildren to be able to see elephants one day. Whereas an animal rights activist would say, I want to protect an elephants because every single elephant deserves to live their natural life in the way that they were meant to and they don't want to die. And so that was sort of a shift for me in thinking about going out into the field, you know, collecting specimens, doing invasive research, um, animals in captivity for scientific purposes. None of those really felt right to me. And so I really wanted to shift more into thinking about every animal as an individual and respecting each of their rights and wishes and, you know, natural life. As you mentioned, you're, you're not knocking conservationists. It's just saying like, this is, this is my personal, this is the bucket that I feel like I want to exist in. This is the framework within which I want to work. That was kind of an interesting thing when, when, you, when you shared that as well, because it is important to consider the, let's say the identities, right? If you're taking on the identity of the conservationist or the identity of animal, you know, these, these, you could say these are just labels. This is semantics, but not necessarily if it means all of these things and the approach to it is, is this way instead of this way. And you're just more comfortable with that. I don't know. It's just think something for people to think about, I think within any career, right. As you, as you kind of navigate the things you want to do with your life. And I mean, this, this topic is, we like to have conversations like this on the show. I like to because I think it's important for, we're not saying everybody's going to go out and become all of a sudden like the perfect traveler. And, you know, like you mentioned in my past, I think about, it was kind of a, a natural thing, not knowing all of these things and not being aware of them and being a young backpacker, you know, in the late nineties and being in Thailand and being like, well, of course I want to ride an elephant. I want to feel an elephant's skin. I want to be next to an elephant and have that experience. That sounds amazing. Not considering the elephant or the circumstances or really not having the greater mindset. And I think that's why this show is important because we're, we're just bringing it top of mind, right? We're not saying, and you know, people are going to go out there and be perfect and not do things wrong, but Let's just get the advice on, on how to do things right. And I think there are some nuances here. And I have some other deeper questions around some of the, yeah, we can use like specific types of animal tourism, let's call it, as, uh, as examples. But in some of the information you advanced, you talked about the common types of animal exploitation tourists encounter. And I thought that would be a, a good place to start and then dive into the advice because then you're using real world examples I think people have seen or perhaps even participated in. Yeah, sounds good. So what are those? I mentioned elephants, like visiting elephant sanctuaries, riding elephants. I think you had in your list like dog sledding. What, what, what are some of the other? Yeah. So I think some of the top ones that travelers encounter, elephant riding is way up there. Also, um, taking photos with animals, which are sometimes called photoprop animals. So anytime you can hold, hold a monkey or like a tiger right, Like sit with a tiger. I've seen people with their picture with a tiger. Exactly. Yes, that one comes up a lot. Um, also, feeding and touching wild animals, which is sometimes someone is asking you to pay them to let that happen. But sometimes that just happens when we're out traveling. 
Um, so that is one that comes up a lot. Dolphin experiences. So whether that's swimming with dolphins, uh, feeding them, watching shows, that one's pretty common. Um, and also street experiences. So anytime you're watching snake charmers on the street or someone's coming up to you and, you know, with a monkey on a leash kind of thing. Um, those are, those are ones that come up a lot. And this is where it's kind of tricky. And we could talk about some of this stuff now. I'll take the dog sledding, for example, you know, in history and culture, that has been a traditional thing that maybe that group of indigenous people have done for, I looked up a stat and it's like the first dog sled, I think was 1000 AD or something. So some of these these indigenous folks have had this as part of their culture for centuries. How do you handle that? Or is that, does that make it okay? So I think there, there are a few things around that. First is maybe it would help to like take a step back and talk about like the general considerations that kind of apply to all of those different categories of, of animal exploitation in that it's animals being taken out of their natural habitats and being forced to do something that they're not doing voluntarily um, they're not living in natural environments. They're not living in natural social groups. Um, they often don't have appropriate diet, maybe not access to um, proper medical care. They might have restricted movements. These are sort of common themes that we see when animals are being exploited for profit. And so then if we, even if we start to look at animal uses that have more traditional or indigenous backgrounds, once that, once that makes the step from indigenous people or local cultures using animals in a particular way, that's kind of a whole separate conversation about like them using as historically used. But then when it starts to turn into using for profit and getting tourists or outsiders involved, that's when the animals start to take an extra step of being commodified and just treated as a way to make money, right? So if you're a native person who is using dog sledding to, to get around because that's the only form of transportation you have, that's very different than having a facility that offers dog sled experiences to travelers who are just rotating through and rotating through, and those dogs are being forced to pull these sleds day after day after day after day. It's like it's not really the same activity. Is there a, an acceptable version of that in your opinion? For example, somebody's bringing in working with travelers and tourists with a dog sled because they want to share their culture and their history. And it's in, in a way where they're mindful of how they use the dogs. The, you know, it's not just like 50 trips a day or whatever. I don't know how, how it works with dog sledding, but do you know what I'm saying? Like you're having a face-to-face conversation with that person. They're saying, well, this is, this is us sharing our, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. I'm just saying these are like the types of complicated issues I think that come up. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, on this. You know, somebody is saying, well, this is how what my family's been doing for centuries and, and this has been passed down and, and we do this to share our, our history and our culture with people. And yes, it allows us to make a living and, and we take care of the dogs in this way and, you know, we're mindful of all this and, and how do you respond to that person or what's kind of the, the approach? My approach is a pretty hard line on things like that in that I don't think there's ever any reason to exploit animals. So again, it's a whole separate conversation about people doing it for their own like cultural reasons. But once tourists get involved, tourists have no reason to be participating in any sort of animal exploitation basically none of us know enough to be able to properly judge those welfare conditions to understand what's happening behind the scenes, right? You're just seeing what they're telling you. And so is it possible that there are dog sled operators out there who have really ethical operations and they really care for their animals? Yeah, that's possible. But we also know that there are a ton that don't. And of course, they're not going to tell you that they're the ones that don't, right? So you're not seeing where the dogs are kept when they're not working. You're not seeing how those animals are raised, which animals didn't make the cut to actually get to be there and how they were treated. Dog sledding also has like a whole other batch of issues around breeding, um, which is like a whole nother thing. 
So I think for, for us as travelers, we just don't have the experience and the expertise to be able to make informed decisions. We're relying on what people are telling us. And welfare washing is a really huge problem in the tourism industry. And that is when um, someone is intentionally misleading or outright lying to make you think that an experience or a facility or an activity is more animal friendly than it actually is. And so it's very hard to be able to trust without having the opportunity to do independent research. So if you show up somewhere and someone says, oh, no, I treat these dogs great or I treat these elephants fantastically, they're, they're, you know, they're like my pets. There's really no way to verify that. And as responsible tourism becomes a growing interest, right, more and more people are wanting to have ethical experiences, more and more people or have awareness about this issue, and they're starting to ask questions, tour operators are becoming more and more savvy about how to dodge those questions or how to provide answers that make you feel okay enough to go ahead and give them your money. Um, and so it's just, it's easier if you want to be an ethical tourist related to wildlife is to just draw a line um, and only participate in things that you know are really responsible. So again, that's seeing animals in the wild, living their natural lives, um, and visiting ethical sanctuaries. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. One of the things you sent over was how to identify an ethical sanctuary. Can, can you talk about that because you mentioned the term sanctuary is unregulated. So that means that they could, anybody could just say they're a sanctuary and what, what does that mean? And how do you find those ethical ones? Yeah. So this is another form of welfare washing that you have to watch out for is that the term sanctuary is unregulated. Um, other terms that are sometimes used are orphanage, rescue center, reserve, these make people feel like this is gonna. This is a good place to go, um, but oftentimes that is not true. So you really need to do your research to assess what's happening at these facilities. So um, what you want to do is check their website um, 
and, and, and their social media to see if you can get some information about how they operate. And you want to look for information about the problem that they're helping to solve. Um, so for example, if you have animals who are in there because they've been rescued from the elephant riding industry, there will be information on there about why elephant riding is bad, how that negatively impacts these animals, and why they now have to be cared for in a sanctuary. Also, you don't want to have any breeding at an ethical sanctuary. There's enough animals out there who need care that there's no reason to be making more in captivity. Um, so sometimes a facility will say, you know, we don't participate in breeding, we sterilize animals. Um, and sometimes you kind of have to look a little deeper. And that's when you want to look to see if they're promoting baby animals as an attraction. So if they're like, oh, the latest baby monkey was born, come have your picture taken with him. Who doesn't want to hold a baby monkey? They're right. adorable. I mean, they I just, are. of course I want a baby monkey crawling all over my head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, even just talking about it, you just want to, yeah, I want to have that experience. So that's where yeah. the... Yeah, it's a very understandable natural urge. I mean, again, I've been there. I don't want to at all sound like I have, you know, came with this knowledge, right? Like I've made mistakes. I've done things that I regret. Um, and so I don't think anyone should feel bad for anything that they have done in the past. And we're all going to make mistakes going forward. But it's really just about trying to learn as much as you can and understand that this misinformation is out there so that you can have your radar up for it, right? Like we need to know that everything that we're being told is not the truth and that we need to be, to dig a little deeper. So yeah, so breeding is another thing you want to look for that they're not doing. Um, also any animal or and human contact. So if, if you have a facility that says they're a sanctuary, but you're allowed to participate in bathing an elephant, for example, that's a bad sign. That's a, definitely a red flag. You shouldn't have that contact between visitors and animals. You shouldn't be holding them. You shouldn't be washing them. You shouldn't be really be feeding them. You shouldn't be doing anything where you're in that close proximity to them. What kind of contact should you expect? Like no contact? No contact. Yeah. You should be in observation only mode always when it comes to wildlife. I know it's not the answer anybody wants. We all we all want to cuddle them, but they just do not want to be cuddled. It's just that, you know, wild animals are not companion animals. And what we think is affection is often really aggression to them. So anytime you're holding them, you're restricting their movement, that's an, that's an aggressive act to a wild animal. So it's actually terrifying to them. The thing that when we think we're giving them love, we're actually scaring the crap out of them. Um, which is not very cool of us. So we have to kind of put aside what we want and remember to think about things from the animal's perspective. Have you had moments where you felt like you had that connection where they were, you were holding an animal or petting an animal and it was reciprocated in a genuine way? I have. I've, I've been a long-term volunteer at a primate sanctuary at the Vervet Monkey Foundation in South Africa, which is a fantastic organization. Um, and as part of that, there were some monkeys who couldn't be integrated into the troops. Um, and so monkeys are very social animals and they require contact, right? Grooming, touching. Um, and so there, there were some monkeys that we cared for in that way. Um, and I was also there during baby season. So a big problem with, with vervet monkeys is that they're, they're kind of treated like vermin in South Africa. And so a lot of them get killed by farmers or they are attacked by dogs and then the babies are orphaned and end up at the, at the sanctuary. And so until the babies are old enough to live on their own, they have to be given 24-7 care by humans. And so I was able to participate in that. Um, and I will tell you that it is amazing to snuggle with a little baby monkey. They bite really hard and they poo all over you constantly. So it's like not as awesome as people expect it to be. Um, but as soon as those babies were old enough to be independent, they went into a troop or into an enclosure where they were, did not have human contact. And we integrated them into troops with adoptive mothers so that they could learn to be monkeys instead of learning to rely on humans. No, thanks for sharing that. Because I think that's a great real world example of 
you know, you have a dream to hold a monkey, like as you can see, <laughs> it's maybe more complicated and harder to achieve, but there are circumstances in which it's still possible and ethical at the same time, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And so if you so in something like that, if you are gonna volunteer at a sanctuary, there's almost always at a responsible one, there will be a quarantine period because as we learned from COVID, passing diseases is very easy between humans and animals, um, particularly primates because we're so closely related. So when you go to these types of facilities, there's often a period where you're not allowed to have contact until you've gone through your quarantine period and you receive the proper training and you're doing it only within the confines of appropriate care for those animals. Again, if, if you want to have that sort of experience, there are ways to do it. Um, but it should only be in the context of care. In that sense, you kind of you move from tourist to semi-professional, where you're there in a capacity to care for animals. And that shouldn't be happening in like a day visit or an overnight visit. That should be an extended period that you're committed to being there to care for those animals and learn how to do it properly. Okay. So just to kind of pull out the sort of the big picture here, it sounds like just generally speaking, if you... You should be in observer mode at a at an ethical sanctuary. If you're anything past that, it's most likely going to require a deeper commitment in terms of a volunteer opportunity or an extended stay where you're you're involved, you're working there. And generally speaking, you shouldn't have those contact experiences in like a a day a short day visit, let's say. Yes. And I also just want to add a caveat that there are a lot of unethical volunteering experiences out there as well. Um, and so just like a, a regular tourist visit, a volunteer experience needs to be researched really thoroughly to make sure that you're not actually participating in something that's unethical. Okay. Is there anything else on ethical sanctuaries that you wanted to share if not, we can we can talk about choosing ethical tour operators, which is another next level thing. Because I guess, you know, when we're talking about ethical sanctuaries, that's uh, what I'm imagining is that sort of the independent traveler finding something online and going, let's go visit the sanctuary and see these animals, as opposed to tour operators, which you, you'd be going with a group of people and they would be taking you somewhere. And then you have a layer in between because it's not always easy to figure out <laughs> where they're taking you necessarily. Or Yeah, I mean, you can always go to the website directly to where they're taking you if that's listed. But If it's listed, yeah. So it is, it's another, it's, I mean, research is the bottom line across all of this is you need to do your research. So when you're looking for a tour operator going to their website, looking for red flags and also looking for good signs. So you're looking to see, do they have depictions of humans and animals in physical contact? Are they listing that they're taking you to places that you can see are going to be exploitative? Are they including elephant rides, for example? Um, but you also want to look for um, an animal welfare policy or a wildlife behavior policy to see if they've written down a commitment to behave in a certain way when it comes to these animals, or if they have educational materials. So like, let's say it's a safari tour operator. Do they have guidelines that say, here's how you behave responsibly when you're on safari with us? Like, here's what's acceptable and what's not. Um, you also can look at their social media to see what comments people are making and also their reviews to see if people are highlighting any concerns. Um, one thing I do want to note is that there, there have been studies that show that humans are just really bad at identifying low welfare conditions when it comes to animals, even after having experienced it. So many people will go to a place that is abusing animals, and then they'll go write a five-star review because they had an amazing time and they had their blinders up to all of that other stuff where they didn't know what to look for. So my recommendation is always to like, don't read the five-star reviews. Read the one- and two-star reviews. That's where you're going to start to see the welfare concerns. And so check there first and see if anyone has raised any concerns that might lead you to do some additional research rather than just relying on people saying, yeah, it was great. Okay. Yeah, that's great advice. Really practical, actionable stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, 
my wife has a dream to hold a koala bear, for example, you know, and it's like, you could imagine if you went and did an experience like that, or I have, I have a dream to like swim with the dolphins, but I only want to do it naturally. I want to, I want to like, I want them to show up in the ocean when I'm swimming. That would be the ideal. So I haven't gone to do that because of these reasons we're talking about, but, but I've made mistakes in the past. Like, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot more knowledge just through this podcast and conversations like this, that it takes the edge off of my innate desire to have a close encounter like that, that, you know, can be life-changing and fulfilling if you're in ignorance is bliss mode and you're just kind of blocking everything out around it. Uh, and thus, the five-star reviews, right? Like somebody go in there like they had a dream to pet an elephant and they finally got to do it. Amazing, right? And these are life-changing experiences and they can be. Again, this is why we're we're highlighting all this stuff here because I do think it is possible to have those life-changing experiences without the impact. And you know, like another thing I just want to, it's obvious, but you might go as an individual and think, okay, well, you know, it was just me and I did this and it wasn't a huge deal, right? But when you think about mass tourism and some how popular some of these places are and activities, you look around, you see how many people come in that, that two-hour period you're there and you think about the whole day and you think about day in and day out, year in and year out, you start to realize this is a constant thing that just never, ever stops. And then you can really start to feel the impact I feel. You know, we all know that in our heads, but I think that that type of consideration takes the individual out and you can start to kind of step back and maybe see the bigger picture for some of these. Yeah. I think the numbers would be shocking to a lot of people. There's there's actually been studies done that show that there are half a million wild animals currently suffering for tourist entertainment at any at any given time and that between 2 and just over three and a half million people per year participate in activities that have negative welfare or negative conservation impacts. And probably most of those people would be horrified to know that they participated in that because the kinds of people who want to participate in animal and tourism experiences are people who love animals, right? It's people who have the dream to be close to them. And so they're not there maliciously. Nobody you know, is there saying, oh, I'm here to harm an elephant by going on an elephant ride today. You're trying to, to build that personal connection that you dream of. And it's just, unfortunately, it's not reciprocated. Um, and, and so much of what goes into the training and the taking them out of the natural habitat and, and the emotional and physical harm to these animals, we wouldn't want to support that if we knew what happened. Like these millions of tourists are not out there trying to intentionally cause harm. So it's it's really sad on a couple of different levels that that these animal lovers don't have the information that they need to make good choices. But if we do have that education and continue to show that there is a demand for ethical and high welfare experiences, then we can grow the number of opportunities that are available on that side of the spectrum rather than the side of the spectrum that's exploitative. Okay. What about domesticated animals, let's say? I'm just thinking from a broader perspective of, uh, I know carriage rides were on your list of common things. Uh, You could think of New York City and taking a carriage ride and all. Of course, that doesn't seem like the ideal circumstances for a horse, right? But say out in the countryside, wherever, there's very few places that horses are wild anymore. And practically speaking, they're not just going to be released into the wild. The reality is they're going to be living on farms and people can visit those farms and that sort of thing. And there's mass versions of that. And there's more local, hyper-local versions of that, right? Like we have like a one horse open sleigh ride at the farm across from my father-in-law's. There's not like thousands of people coming to do it. It's a thing during Christmas. It's a local farmer, it's local people usually. We know the guy, we know what he does and the horses would probably freeze to death if they were released in Norway without care and a barn to sleep in and stuff like that. So the horses probably wouldn't have been born into Norway and living in those conditions without human intervention. Right, but here we are. You know, all these farmers aren't just going to let their horses run free. I just wondering in that kind of situation, you know, petting zoos or these these types of things, like, 
I think it's pretty clear when we're talking about it's at least to me it's a little it feels a little more clear when we're talking about elephant sanctuaries and some of these more exotic kind of animals in these places but farm visits let's say or things like that how do you how would you navigate that I mean those are still animals being treated as commodities right those are still animals who are there simply to be traded for money. So the experience of petting them, the experience of having them pull you around in a sleigh is being traded for money. They don't get a vote in that, right? So if that if that horse had a choice, he probably would not choose to be strapped up and have to, you know, drag tourists around the farm over and over. Um, it, it's it's basically just taking away their freedom. I mean, we wouldn't do it to humans. We shouldn't do it to animals. We're taking away their freedom. We're forcing them to do something they don't want to do. We're not allowing them to live in natural family groups. Um, you know, horses are really sensitive and skittish animals. So constantly being around people who who aren't familiar with horses, who might shout or yell or approach them from the wrong an- angle, or children are you know yelling because they're happy or whatever, that is can be really scary to a horse. And we're forcing them to endure these situations that they would not voluntarily put themselves into. And if we're talking about carriage rides in a city, then you have traffic dangers. It is not uncommon for horses to get hit by cars, to be injured or killed by cars, to collapse from exhaustion because they're forced to work in extreme weather conditions, to be underfed because horse poop is not as romantic as carriage rides. So they try to minimize that by keeping them underfed. There's nowhere to put them during their off hours. So they end up in these stalls that are actually just like a parking garage for horses. So they're, they're just treated as things that get put away at the end of the night with no regard for their individual interests and what they would choose if they had the opportunity. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day. I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. It's tough. You know, I think about like a farmer who's really, you can see, cares for those animals and does what they do and that's how they make their living. And I don't think there are a lot of easy answers for some of these things. (laughs) Yeah, for some of them, for sure. But again, those are very fringe cases. When we're talking about a half a million animals being explored, and that's wild animals, which isn't including the dog sledding or the horse carriages. So when we're talking about a half a million wild animals being exploited in tourism, that's not a half a million local farmers with one or two horses on a big property where they're allowing it to happen, right? This is a half a million animals who are in cities where they don't, you know, where, where they're not being treated well, where they're being forced to contend with pollution and traffic and walking on broken glass. 
and dealing with tourists who, you know, are inadvertently causing harm because they don't know how to, you know, sit properly on a horse. And so they're causing issues. It's, it's animals being killed in the wild so that a baby can be captured to be used as a photo prop animal. It's snakes having their mouths sewn shut to make them safer for snake charming and photo prop opportunities. So like, yes, there, there is a spectrum of welfare when it comes to the very fringe and when it comes to domesticated or companion animals. But for the vast majority of tourists, that's not what they're going out there and doing. They're going out there and they're taking pictures with baby monkeys or doing a walk with lion experience or riding an elephant. Or maybe they know that riding an elephant is not good anymore, but then they end up at a sanctuary where they participate in bathing an elephant. And that's actually also really harmful to that animal because they've gone through the same really brutal training as an elephant who's being ridden. Okay. Yeah, I see that's that's helpful when you're sharing the sort of the big statistics and kind of the broader picture, I think. I, I think people have a lot to walk away from in terms of the content that you shared today and the advice and considerations. And I, I think, you know, the goal here isn't to solve every animal problem, at least in, in this show, right? It's just conversation awareness. I think all of these conversations help to bring an awareness around decision-making on the ground for travelers. And yeah, like you said, it's it's it can be difficult to kind of suss out which of these are legit and which aren't, but you also gave us some tools to do that, many tools to do that. And uh, I, I know you sent over also a list of certifications you can trust. I can include all those links in the show notes here. A couple, you sent Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance. Are these various certifications that are applied to sanctuaries or uh, just different animal experiences or, yeah. Yeah. So the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries um, is for animal sanctuaries and same with the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, which is specific to primate facilities. Um, I do want to caveat that not being on this list does not necessarily mean that a facility is bad or low welfare. They just maybe haven't gone through an accreditation process. But if you want to be sure that you're going somewhere that, that is responsible and they're on this list, that's a really good sign. Um, some of the other resources, World Animal Protection focuses very heavily on animals and tourism issues. And um, so they're a great resource for additional research, tips, background information. And they also have a list of companies who have taken a wildlife-friendly pledge. So those are more your tour operators if you're looking for a tour operator. Um, that's where you can look. They also have a list of elephant-friendly facilities. So those are going to be elephant sanctuaries. Um, some of the other ones that were on there, the World Cetacean Alliance, is if you're looking for um, a whale or dolphin watching tour. So seeing these animals in the wild, but with responsible operators, um, then that's another great, a great resource. Okay. Uh, what about your, your website? Can your also business. check out my website, CompassionateTravels.com. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Talk I about have, what you do um, and how, how you kind of take the load off for people in this with this stuff? Yeah. So I'm really trying to take these really large issues that have so many different facets to them and boil them down to something that's easy to understand and easy to remember. So snippets of information when you're going on safari, here are things that you need to consider. When you're looking to choose a, a wildlife sanctuary, here are things to look for. Um, I'm also available for consultation for anybody who is trying to plan a trip, whether they want to book through me as a traditional travel agent or whether they just want to have a consultation where we talk about their plans or maybe look at different places that they could go that, that meet the criteria, um, then, that, then that's another way I can help travelers kind of make, make good choices. Okay. And is that you know, you could one off, like they could contact you to organize a, a day thing or a volunteer opportunity, or is it always a full trip that you're planning? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I don't really do volunteer opportunities yet. I would like to add that in the future. So right now I'm mainly planning trips. Um, but like I said, I also have kind of the consultation. If you wanted to self book, but you want to have an hour long session to kind of talk through some options, or you want me to do research and provide you some recommendations, and then you take those recommendations and go do with them what you will and kind of book on your own, then that's also an option. Okay. Amazing. How's it going? It's still new. So I just launched the business in like the spring of this year. So it's still getting up and running, still building a following. Um, But it's good. I'm getting some really good feedback on it. And I'll be in India later this year to, to really get some on the ground footage and connections and experience. So I'm excited for that. It must feel good to create something that's aligned with all of your values and the work that you've been focused on for your career. And yeah. to combine that with travel, which is obviously something you love. I mean, you're, you're yeah. out on the road now and you're doing the digital nomad thing, right? I am. Yeah. This is my <laughs> first time. It's, um, it's a little challenging if I'm being honest. I'm still getting used Be to honest. it. Be <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to do a combination of moving slowly and then a little more quickly because I am also trying to backpack and, and travel um, and finding places that have good Wi-Fi connections and quiet spaces is, you know, I haven't yet found a community. Like I haven't done any of the co-living opportunities um, that I hope to do in the future. I think that'll, that'll change things a little bit, but for now I'm doing it on my own and it's a little tricky, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah. So you're doing it solo, right? Yes. Have any solo travel tips? I know you've done a lot of solo travel. What do you like about it? I have done. Yeah. Well, I like it because you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, And I I like that independence. Um, Yeah. I think it's really just about being confident in what you're doing. Um, you know, you're making the decisions, you're doing the research and and you really learn to trust yourself that whatever problem arises, you're going to figure it out, right? Like if the bus doesn't show up or the hotel lost your reservation or what, like you're going to figure it out. And so it really does help to build your confidence in knowing that, that you really can be independent. How, how long are you into the digital nomad thing now? Um, two and a half, almost three months. Okay. So you got somebody who's leaving next week and they're, well, I'm going to be trying it for the first time too. What, what advice are you giving them? Do your research on your destination to make sure that your accommodation is going to have good Wi-Fi, and, or there are actual affordable co-working spaces nearby. Okay. How are you finding Albania? I really like it. I, I was in Tirana for a month. That's where I started. And I loved the city and did some hiking in the north that was amazing. Um, and I've kind of circled back around. I was in Kosovo and North Macedonia for a while, and I've circled back around now to the south of Albania. So I'm getting a little beach time in before I continue on. That's cool. You're in some unique spots, I'd say. Are they, they maybe are a bit more up-and-coming digital nomad hotspots. I'm not sure if you've met other working travelers in in these areas? Not too or? many. No. Not too yeah. many yet. So that's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great region. It's a beautiful region. So um, it's just the Wi-Fi that we need to check on. Mm. I do want to mention once more, CompassionateTravels.com, your website, so people can follow you there. Is there anything else that people should check out, follow you, and, and whatever you want to share here? Yeah, I'd say follow along. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so you can follow us there. And then, like I said, I am blogging on the website with different articles coming out every week about ways to travel responsibly. So you can keep checking back. Um, and then if you did want to plan a vacation or if you wanted any help with research to track down ethical experiences, I would be more than happy to help. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in planning is group travel. Because when you have a larger group, it's easier to really customize an itinerary and be able to add unique experiences and sanctuary visits, wildlife talks that are harder to do when it's a small group traveling. Um, so if anybody has, you know, 
animal welfare clubs or courses, university courses, or even hiking groups, any groups of people who would be the whole, the whole trip. Um, I'd love to be able to customize a trip that really like elevates the animal welfare experience and adds that educational component so that it's really a, a learning opportunity as well as a holiday. Cool. Any advice for, I know you're vegan, any advice for somebody that has a specific type of diet adhering to that on the road and these various places? Yeah, it's, uh, it can be a challenge for sure, depending on where you are. And it's happy cow is absolutely like my favorite app to be able to find vegan restaurants along the way. Um, but I also spend a lot of time in grocery stores, um, getting stuff on my own so that I can prepare either at a hostel or if I have an apartment for a while cooking for myself um, is a great way to make sure that you know exactly what you're getting. Any other favorite resources? Have you shared a bunch around the conversation we had in regards to ethical animal experiences, but outside of that, travel resources, any other things you love? People always love a good resource recommendation or two if you have any. When it comes to wildlife travel, I really do think World Animal Protection um, tops the list on places to go to to get information. Other really great organizations who are working on behalf of animals who also have a lot of resources that are that are useful. Um, Born Free is a great one. Wildlife SOS in India has done some incredible work. Um, the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust in Kenya uh, is amazing, and they have lots of programs that they support conservation, local communities, uh, and they're most famous for their elephant orphanage, which is very cute. They have great social media. Um, and Wild Aid as well is another really good one. Um, and oh, one thing I did, I wanted to mention as a resource, Born Free has um, a red flag reporting program. So if you are traveling and you do come across any sort of animal exploitation or abuse, you can use their reporting program to let them know. And they, you know, keep track of everything, investigate, do whatever it is that, that can be done to stop it. But it helps them to really have eyes kind of all over the, the globe to see what's happening. So if you can report anytime you see anything that's, that's not up to par, that would be fantastic. Cool. Thank you so much, first of all, for reaching out and then having the uh, kindness to spend your time coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. And clearly you're passionate about this and not just because you want people to book through your site, but because you want people to make the right decisions. And just a, a reminder, nobody's taking away anybody's animal experiences, right? You can still have those life-changing experiences. I, I wanted to kind of finish there. And just as a reminder that this is not about not having those experiences that can really impact you. It's about just being considerate and thinking about different ways you can do it that are a bit more sustainable for all parties, let's say. Yeah. And I mean, I'm definitely not here to tell people not to have animal experiences. My whole company is built around helping you to have ethical wildlife experiences. And there are so many fantastic ways to do it. Certainly not here to tell people they shouldn't. Just to, like you said, to raise awareness that this abuse happens on a much wider scale than most people know about. Um, and, and since I know we are both lovers of the quote, one that really resonates with me when it comes to this is Maya Angelou's quote, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So we're all constantly learning. We're all finding out things that we didn't know before. And it's okay. It's okay if we've made mistakes in the past, but we need to keep learning and then integrating that new knowledge into making sure that we're doing better in our future choices. I love that. What a great way to end it. An awesome quote. And you just helped us do all of that, right? You gave us a lot of information. Now we can make better choices moving forward. So thank you so much, Kristen. Good luck out there. Let me know if you ever pass through town here. Be nice thank to, you. to meet you in person. Absolutely. All right. Take care. special thanks to Kristen Diedrich for stopping by the show. Check her out at CompassionateTravels.com You can find all the socials and whatnot there and also we're going to put the important links mentioned in the show notes so don't forget to bookmark this and use it as a resource if you need it in the future and like I said at the top, it's not about 
eliminating experiences with animals, but it's about getting informed and trying our best to do it the right way. And it always reminds me of that quote, be the change you want to see in the world. We all have power as individuals to make choices. And if we can have more awareness around how to make the right choices, that compounds over time as each individual embraces those choices and implements them on the ground. That's what this show is about. So we can all be the change. It reminds me of that quote, be the change you want to see in the world. As individuals, we can all do our little part to be the change we want to see. And I wish I wasn't so ignorant in my earlier travels around some of this stuff, but what's done is done. And now I'm doing my best to to get informed and to stay informed and to make those smart choices. So we do what we can. Like I said, it's not about being the perfect traveler. I think it's just about getting informed and doing the best we can with what we have, with the tools we have. And hopefully this episode is a tool for you. And I'll leave you with a quote to wrap things up in just a moment. First, I did promise to share some fun facts about one of the animals mentioned today. So I found this article, Top 10 Facts About Elephants on WWF.org. UK, WWF, World Wildlife Fund, one of the big charities out there. We'll share a couple fun facts from this, from this article. First, their trunks have mad skills. Elephants have around 150,000 muscle units in their trunk. 150,000! That is insane. It could contain up to eight liters of water. So I thought that was pretty cool. Their tusks are actually teeth, was another one. Elephants are constantly eating. They need to eat up to 150 kilograms of food a day. That's around 375 tins of baked beans. (laughs) There you go. And this one I thought was really cool. They can communicate through vibrations in a variety of ways. They communicate, including sounds like trumpet calls, of course, as we know, but some sounds are too low for people to hear, says according to the article, which I didn't know that they created vibrations that people couldn't hear and then they were communicating in that way. That was really cool. And they say an elephant never forgets. Why is that? It's because, quote, the elephant's temporal lobe, the area of the brain associated with memory, is larger and denser than that of people. Hence the saying, elephants never forget. So there you go. Some facts about elephants there. I'll leave you with a quote now. And I was going to come up with a new one, but why not reiterate the one that Kristen mentioned in the show earlier from Maya Angelou because it's perfect. Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Absolutely love that one. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.